see that God is, is, uh, is wrath against sin is, is in the Old Testament, but also it is in the New, as we'll see soon. We are in Isaiah chapter 9, so if you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, and as you're turning, just a couple of questions to contemplate. Have you thought about, meditated on the wrath of God against sin lately? How might this meditation move you to worship of our great God? In other words, have you meditated, have you thought about God's wrath, and how might that move you to worship? I hope we can do that today, to do a collective meditation as we look at Isaiah 9 and 10 and walk away with with a crystal clear, hopefully through the Spirit's help, view of God. Isaiah chapter 9, Rusty preached a couple weeks ago through verse 7 in that beautiful passage of the Messiah child to be born. And actually, I'm going to preach through bookends of that. So um, Isaiah 9 speaks of that Messiah coming. Isaiah 11 will also speak of the the stump of Jesse, uh, that Messiah coming. So in between, there's a cycle we see in Isaiah of often there's an indictment against evil, and then there's a broadcast of hope. Now, we'll end with hope today, but I'm going to tell you, next week, uh, as we look at Isaiah 11, it's going to get brighter. The hope is brighter because darkness is not the end of the day uh, for God's people. It is always light after darkness, light. Let's start reading in verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, to devour Israel with open mouth. And this phrase, I want you to notice, happens four times. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel the head and the tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. He has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 18, for the wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. Here it it is again. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside from the needy, from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their own right, 
that widows may be their spoil, that they may be the, make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. I'm going to stop reading right there. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we admit that we often do not understand your wrath. There are reasons for that. Oh, Father, we pray that you would make clear who you are to us. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Give light to our eyes and give warmth to our heart that we may see Christ, who is both Savior and Lord, who is the Messiah and the Judge. Oh, Lord, may we see our need for Him. And, Lord, may we, in the same right, through the power of the Spirit, walk against evil and push back against evil in our own lives and in our spheres of influence. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and my prayer is that the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and all God's people say, Amen. So why don't we have a problem conceiving of God's wrath? What makes us uncomfortable... Are you uncomfortable yet? What makes us uncomfortable when this topic comes up? We shy away from it. We want to hear just about the grace of God, but we don't want to hear about the wrath of God. This is a problem. Well, for one, this topic of God's wrath pushes against all modern sensibilities that assume that every human being is born innocent and are basically good. Case in point, Luke Bryan, a quasi-country music singer, However you view him, I'm not sure. He has a song that assumes this. It's entitled, All People Are Good. Here's how the chorus goes. By the way, I love country music, but uh, um, this is not a a downplay of country music, uh, carte blanche, but we need to attend to what we're hearing. Here's the chorus. I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Now, is that true? Biblically speaking, I should see this all over. No, 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 no. There are many cultural references, many others that we can look to for this type of heretical teaching. We can look to movies. We can look to songs. Not everything in culture is bad, but we must be discerning. Take the good, lop off the evil. Be discerning people. Ephesians 2.3 actually states this, to the contrary, that we were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature, not nurture, children of wrath. By the very fact that we were born, we were born guilty in Adam. The Bible is clear about that, Romans 5. For example, yesterday we were having family worship and we were walking through uh, this family devotional. Long story short, we have it in the bookstore, so it's a little plug. It's very good. 
We're in, we're in Genesis 3, and one of the questions they wrote was, kids, um, did you have to learn to disobey? Who taught you to disobey? The first answer was no, didn't have to learn to disobey, and we agree with them. We're, we're the same way, even as adults, and nobody had to teach us to disobey. So if you'll think about your own life, your heart disposition, your nature is to move away from God and not toward Him. This is because the fall of Adam. This makes sense of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with me. The Christian story has a lot of sense to it. It is the real story of real reality. It is true. It gives us categories to go, ah, yes, that's why. To compound our problem, not only is our view of man wrong, our view of God is wrong-headed. Thinking of him as a red-faced grandfather in the sky who loses his composure just at a whim. That's not a view of God that is healthy or good. J.I. Packer, in his seminal book, Knowing God, states this, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble, thing that human anger often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to object moral evil. You should hear that. It is a right and necessary reaction to object moral evil. That's what God's wrath is. What we must remember, especially from our context here in Isaiah, and I'm going to get to the text in just a minute, is, is the holiness of God that bounds all his character together. And what Rusty so well highlighted a few weeks ago in Isaiah 6 is that the holiness of God basically means every facet of his character is perfect and not lacking, even his wrath. It is perfect. It's what makes God God. It's what makes him holy and righteous altogether. C.S. Lewis got to the heart of the matter in his collection of essays, God in the Dock, and he said this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He, meaning the modern man, is the judge, and God is in the dock or on the stand. He, modern man, is a quite kindly judge. If God should have reasonable defense for being God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And what he's saying is that modern man approaches God in the sense of, God, explain yourself. Explain yourself. Now, is it wrong to question God? In a sense, no. If you look at the book of Job, he said, where is God that I may state my case? But where is your heart when you're, when you're approaching God? Is it, a, is it a question of rebellion or is it a question of faith? It's anchored in faith, but wondering, what's going on around me, Lord? Help me. There's a real difference there. In this role reversal, we assume the worst about God and assume the best about man. And the scriptures clearly flip the scales. Man is born guilty, meaning not good. God has always been perfectly good in all of his thoughts, decrees, and actions. Unless we think that the Old Testament God is somehow different from the New Testament God, I want to look at a couple of New Testament passages to help us. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Romans 19, 15, or Revelation 19.15, this is John speaking of the return of Christ. So this is Jesus, our Lord Jesus, that's being described here. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread their winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. One more quote I want to read to you. Rusty passed it my way this week, so I was studying. It's William Farley, Gospel-Powered Humility, and this helps, I think, will help us as well. Why do people get so upset about the wrath of God? First, human wrath is sinful, often self-centered and out of control. It implies intense, unrestrained, spontaneous anger, the kind that causes damage. How can this be good? Anger is not inherently wrong. It can be good or bad. Only sinful anger is wrong, and God's anger is never sinful. Let me say that again. Only sinful anger is wrong, and God's anger is never sinful. In fact, it is a part of His goodness. God can't be good unless He gets angry at sin and evil. We have to know that. A perfectly good being must love virtue with an infinite passion. So if sin destroys lives, eviscerates human happiness, robs God of His glory, and then an infinitely good God must hate evil in all its forms. If evil is so destructive, how could God be passive towards it and be good? He last, he ends, he says, Most people don't actually object to God getting angry, but God getting angry with us because we are proud of our goodness. The problem is we don't think we are evil. Hitler was bad, but we are good. The second reason God's wrath angers us is because we don't know how to harmonize God's love and wrath. God simultaneously feels both intense love and intense wrath for fallen sinners. Let me explain it to you this way. You think about God as the sun. He's not the sun, but this is a metaphor. Think of an ice cube approaching the sun. Would that ice cube last very long? No. In the same way, God is so holy, God is so perfect, that even any sin approaching God is like that ice cube that will melt in God's absolute presence of perfection and holiness. It's, it's, it's a consequence. God's wrath is a consequence against sin of His holiness, who He is. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, hopefully you've noticed, uh, we'll get to the text now, you've noticed in the refrain in verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and 10.4, these mark out blocks of our passage. Uh, and if you're studying the passage, you can underline that refrain. It's a continual refrain of, for all this, so it outlines things, his anger, God's anger, has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still for all this. What is the cause of God's intense anger against Israel? For the root cause, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Did you see it? Chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. And the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, and listen to this, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Pride and arrogance. This is the root of the sin that happens within Israel. 
Pride, as the church fathers would say, is the backdoor sin of all sins, the mother of all sins. And so what's happened is Israel has turned away and is, they're self-sufficient. You see, the bricks, have, the bricks have fallen, no regard to God. Hey, our, our bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild. There's a natural and cultural pride that is devoid of dependence on the Lord. So pride, arrogance, and self-reliance. Look at verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Again, we're talking about prayer today. And what this is saying is that the people of God, they did not even turn to the Lord with a cry of prayer. They may have thought the Lord exists, but they were functional atheists, as we all could fall into a trap when we're prayerless. A functional atheism that knows God is there, but yet is living life self-sufficiently. Verse 17, it outlines godlessness, godlessness, evil behavior, and disgraceful speech. And so as indicated in verses 18 through 21, God gives them over to their own wickedness. This is um, thinking of Paul's reference in Romans one twenty four, in which God gave them over. This is the most devastating act of judgment. God removing His hand that restrains chaos and evil. And listen, if God were not wrathful against chaos and evil and sin, we would live in a very, very miserable world, much more miserable than we can ever imagine. Yet in God's goodness, even though mankind shakes his fist at God, he still restrains evil. What else has moved God into indignation? Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Decree iniquitous decrees, riding oppression, turn aside from the needy, robbing the poor, exploiting the widows and the fatherless. Does this sound familiar? People of God were called to love the poor, to extend biblical justice, to visit the widows and the fatherless in their affliction. We are called to live as a society and to encourage one another in families, in our congregation, as individuals to execute biblical justice to the poor, the fatherless, and the widow. This is what we're called to be, merciful as God is merciful, to extend justice to those who need it. So where are you in that? I talked to a a friend this week who he was talking about missing his children, and he said, you know, I, I miss my family, and, and I, I'm just ready to get back to them. He's on travels. He's uh, moving around trying to uh, make plans for his life and figure out the next call of his life. And uh, he said, you know, I'm ready to get this all figured out because I'm ready to get the focus off me and on others. And then he said, you know, our family motto is others. So I'll ask my kids, kids, what are our family motto? Others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Recently, a pastor friend of mine helped two older black ladies who ran out of gas on a very busy street. He stopped, extended a kind word, uh, even pushed the car out of the roadway, and uh, took them uh, to get gas, brought it back, and, uh, and helped them get the car started. But what struck him, and he relayed this to me, is... The ladies said, yeah, it was so busy and people were just honking their horns and flying by. Nobody was stopping to help. It broke my heart. 
Maybe think, how many of those people were believers? How many of those people were, were just flying by and even rudely honking their horn? Nothing they could do. Turns out the, the gas uh, gauge was broken. So unknowingly, they didn't know they were low. These are small actions, small heart motives that we should be aware of. I read an article recently this week about watchfulness, the spiritual discipline of watchfulness. We're good at watching others in their sin patterns. Are we good at watching our own hearts? What, is, what are we prone to do when we're busy, 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 and somebody needs help? We should contemplate that. Now, to help us uh, get this further of what, what's happening with Israel and what's going on with the wrath of God, imagine, imagine your own vacation. You've been on a week vacation to the beach or the mountains or wherever you go. And uh, it's you and, um, and your wife or your spouse, so wives, husbands, and you've left your kids. They're older. They're, they're at home. And you're driving back in your neighborhood late one night, and all of a sudden, there's absolute chaos in your neighborhood. There's, there's a band of kids just running around, spray-painting on all the houses and tearing down trees and rolling toilet paper on other trees, and, and there's vandalism everywhere. And your reaction is what? Oh, my goodness. Why are you doing this? It's indignation. But imagine you go into your house and your very children are doing the same thing in your house. They've wrecked it. And they're, they're hitting one another, mistreating one another, cursing one another. And they're spray painting all over the walls. They're punching holes in walls. Your response would not be, okay, kids, calm down now. Let's eat supper. If you would, I would think something's wrong with you. Our response would be indignation, a righteous indignation of, no, stop right now. You are desecrating this neighborhood and our house. This is where God is with Israel. Not only has sin wrecked the world, the neighborhood, but Israel, his people, is wrecking the house. They have turned away from him. They have shaked their fists in disregard and saying, I will walk my own way. God's response to Israel is just and right. We see in verses 5 through 19 of chapter 10 that God even turns his attention to Assyria, the instrument of his judgment against Israel. Assyria is a rod in his hand to discipline Israel. Look at verses 12 and 13. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant of heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my own hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove boundaries of the peoples. I plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. And God is saying, if you only knew, O king, if you only knew that I am the sovereign God of this earth, and you too will come under my destruction and wrath. Okay. That's a lot of bad news, right? Is there hope? Is there hope? Yes, there always is hope for God's people especially. Look at verses 20 through 27. The remnant of Israel will return. This is the whole topic here. God's remnant. God will spare a remnant of Israel. They will return into the promised land. They will rebuild and they will return. And what we have to understand 
about all prophecy, especially Old Testament prophecy, but most biblical prophecy, is it's, it's a lot like approaching a mountain range. You approach a mountain range and you often see one mountain and you're like, oh man, it's a beautiful mountain. And then you get up on that mountain and there's more. It's hiding more. There's more mountains behind it. Often biblical prophecy unfolds like that. We often, uh, the Israelites would, would think this is one thing. They're seeing just that one mountain. But actually God is unfolding and fulfilling his prophecies in stages. And we're still in between the times where these stages will be fully fulfilled. And we'll see that next chapter in chapter 11. The Lord of hosts will save his people. Verse 22, it says, only a remnant will return. This is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 27. Paul picks up here in Isaiah and pulls this forward and says, yes, there, there will be a remnant of God's people. How will there be a remnant? Well, first stage is dealing with Assyria, overthrowing his yoke. In verse 27, I will overthrow his yoke and his burden on you. Secondly, and most clearly, by sending the Messiah to be a propitiation for Israel's sins. Now, propitiation is a biblical term that basically means taking upon himself the wrath. And this is where our hope gets really bright. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was appeared for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. You see, the bad news of sin makes the good news of the gospel so much better. If we don't see the bad news, that we are born in sin, that we are prone to sin, we're not sinners just because we sin, we're sinners by birth. If we don't see the bad news, we will not appreciate and glory in the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, friends, you have a choice before you. I encourage you, no matter where you come from, whatever your vantage point, believer, non-believer, the call to us is to rest in Christ and His finished work on the cross on our behalf. You see, Jesus took the wrath that we deserved. He lived the life we could not live. And it's all accounted to us. Our penalty for sin is paid for by the wrath of God applied to Jesus Christ. And you say, how do we understand the wrath of God? The best answer for understanding the wrath of God is in the cross of Christ. That is where we must go when we are dealing with not understanding evil in this world and evil in our hearts and atrocities that we see. We must run to the cross and say, Lord God, thank you. Thank you that in your wisdom, in your grace, in your mercy, and in your justice, you have given us the Messiah who has taken on your wrath so that we may be free, so that we may have peace. We could see it this way. Christ has taken the cup of wrath, of God's wrath, on himself and granted to us the cup of blessing. That is the beauty, my friends, of the gospel. And this is why we sing such a song like, Rock of Ages, listen to these words. 
rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flows be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Friends, we have hope. There is hope in the gospel, but we must understand that our view of God and our view of man needs an overhaul. And in that overhaul, in seeing the clear love of God and His wrath poured out against sin and laid on Christ, we see His hope that we are the remnant of God, trusting, resting on Him for our salvation alone. I'm going to say this last thing and then I'm going to end. The gospel is not about saying all the nice people are in and all the bad people are out. There's an element of that, but the main thing we need to see, the gospel says the humble are in and the arrogant are out. In other words, you can be the nicest person in the world and still reject God, still keep Him at a stiff arm. And we all know nice people in our lives that do that. Oh, that's fine for you. That's fine for you, but I'm going to do what's what's most important to me or what I think is right. We must understand and appeal to them. God is calling for humility, and that humility rests in the work of God and runs toward God in Christ. We must know that. And we are called to a humble disposition as the people of God before him because of what he has done for us. Let us take joy in that. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we need help. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would use my words, that which is helpful and embed it and help us meditate on it and teach us, oh, great teacher, paraclete of God. That which is not helpful, remove it. Father, would you grow your body? Oh, Lord Jesus, would you reach out to that lost sheep or those lost sheep in our midst and bring them in to see that you are good, your steadfast love endures forever. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together again and sing, Lord, I need you, in our closing song.